You're listening to Scaling Up Services, where we speak with entrepreneurs, authors, business experts, and thought leaders to give you the knowledge and insights you need to scale your service-based business faster and easier. And now, here is your host, business coach, Bruce Eckfeld. All right, welcome everyone. I'm Bruce Eckfeld, your host. This is Scaling Up Services. And today we're talking with Ben Jackson. Ben is with uh, For The Win, and he helps Series A and B companies, uh, startups with their onboarding process around uh, helping them scale with new hires. Previously, Ben was at Vice Media, who is director of mobile. Uh, He's at the New York Times. The mobile team has written for The New Yorker, The Atlantic, Fast Company, all some of my favorite publications. So I'm excited to... uh, Excited to speak with you, Ben. Thanks for being on. Thanks for having me. So I'd like to start before we kind of get in kind of heavy with content. Uh, just talk a little bit about your background. Like, how, what's your story? How you got here? How you got into what you're doing? What would help people kind of understand the journey you've been on? Yeah, sure. The best place to start is um, when did I start building software? That's my background is uh, as an app developer and an engineering manager. I uh, started in 1991. Um, I was about 11 years old. And um, my, my middle school actually at the time had a, a really, really great computer lab and a really, really great computer programming intro. So I learned basic as a child and I've just been building software ever since then pretty much continuously. I uh, co-ran a design agency for about six years after school and I worked at Vice. I worked at the New York Times and really, you know, most of my background across all of those roles was in consumer products. So I was helping design and build and grow these really, really large consumer facing applications, mostly for media companies here in New York. And I think, you know, at the time, the, the thing that I saw really as a common thread across all those experiences was that while these companies, including the one that I ran myself, they really took design seriously for the things that their customers dealt with. They didn't apply the same level of uh care and attention to detail when it yeah. came to the experiences that their employees had. And so that's really where the, the genesis of For the Win was, you know, figuring out how to how to apply a, a really high standard of uh, design and, and, you know, great customer experience for the most important customers that any business has, yeah. you know, the people who are keeping the lights on every day. Yeah. So, and then what are some of the things you find kind of different and things you find similar in terms of designing experiences for customers and end users versus designing experiences for employees? And, and what do you think drives some of those differences? Ultimately, people are people. Yeah. And people have some very similar ways of looking at uh, experiences, you know, that no matter if you're dealing with consumers or dealing with employees, they have very little patience. You know, we have a saying in the, the user experience literature, um, we say that your users are drunk um, <laughs> and that, you know, if, if a drunk person can't use the thing that you're building, then a person who's, you know, on Twitter and Facebook and, you know, getting pinged by their email and, you know, waiting for their next meeting in five minutes probably also won't be able to use your product. And I think that that really, that's a constant, no matter what type of user that you're dealing with, when it comes to the employees and and how designing for them is different from the consumers, you know, the the biggest thing that pops out at me is um, these people have a very, very strong reason to stick around, which is you're paying them. That is not enough to keep them around forever if you don't do a really good job. But I think, you know, a lot of companies, it's difficult to justify investing in really great experience design for people who you're already paying to show up to work every day. And so I think a lot of the constraints that HR leads and and executives deal with when they're trying to build a more robust experience for their people 
is getting those resources. You know, how do you marshal the resources for, you know, all of the different HIRS tools you might need, all of the different consultants, coaches who you could bring in to, to really help your team excel when, you know, you're, you're basically competing for resources with the product team that's driving revenue yeah. and growth. It's a good point. I mean, I think a lot of people do kind of have that mentality of, look, I'm, I'm already paying their salary. Why should I have to invest more? Like, uh, you know, they should just do, they should do this stuff. They should be engaged. And, and I think it's a missed, I think it's a missed opportunity. I think it's also, I think companies that do that well can compete more effectively in the market because they're creating essentially a better place to work. And ultimately that's what people want. They want a great place to work. I mean, it, yes, they want to be compensated. Yes, they want money. But, you know, motivation is only, only goes so far when you talk about financial compensation. So these kind of things, really thinking about it, I think are strategic. Yeah, I agree 100%. And, you know, one of the big shifts that I think we've all seen in the last 20 or 30 years in the workplace is this idea that, you know, your workers are really actively choosing your company over the competition. And it used to be that, you know, you get a job, you stick around for 40, 50 years, get your watch, collect your pension, and, and that's your life. And, you know, that is absolutely no longer the case. And the flip side is that, you know, from the employer side, it used to be you hired somebody and they stuck around until you gave them their watch. Yeah. <laughs> um, and that is absolutely no longer the case. And, you know, when employees leave, it's unbelievably expensive. Uh, you know, the estimates range from three months salary on the low end for the replacement cost all the way up to two, three hundred percent of salary. Yeah. You know, and I've heard these numbers kind of thrown around. When, when you look at that, what goes into that? What are some of the things that you kind of factor in or that you, you, you add up to get to those numbers? Yeah, I think most people, they, they look at replacement cost as you know, cost of job listings or yeah. maybe headhunter fees. And sometimes they'll factor in things like relocation expenses or having to fly someone in for an interview. But just the time from your employees, if you yeah. push 10 or 20 people through your interview funnel, that is 10 or 20 people times three to six employees times, say, 30 to 60 minutes per employee, those hours add up. Yeah. And I, th it's, I think that's the key thing that you're mentioning here, which is it's not, it's not the time that you spend with that one employee or that one candidate. It's the time you spend with the nine people that you need to interview to actually hire that one. So it's it, the total cost of hire is actually pretty substantial. Absolutely. Yeah. And you know, that's without even factoring in the time the manager has to spend sourcing yeah. those candidates. And, you know, the in-house recruiters are spending time sourcing, running phone screens. It's just, it's a ton of time. Add that up to, um, you know, the the cost of having a position go unfilled over a series of months. Mm -hmm. All of the extra work that gets put on the rest of the team as they're picking up the slack and that impact on morale. No, yeah, no, I agree. All right, so, so we've got this kind of cost of hire. We've got retention. Talk to me about the, well, let's, let's do this. So, so. That's companies in general. Your focus is in this sort of unique area of startups, all right? So you're you're getting involved. A company has traction. They've got a product, service, idea. They're looking to scale that. They've got another round of funding or two. What are the challenges that you see when people move into that that scaling phase uh, above and beyond just the normal, I'm growing a little bit here and there, when people really go into this substantial scaling, substantial growth mode. 
what challenges do they start to face? The challenges are legion. Yeah. It's incredible. You know, I think um, the biggest one that I see is figuring out how to structure their team. You know, I've heard stories in the past from from founders who grew really, really quickly without doing a lot of work to figure out what jobs people would do. And one of the stories that I keep hearing is, you know, you bring in a bunch of people with this idea that just hoover up as many smart brains as you can and we'll figure out what to do with them later. And oftentimes what happens when you do that is people can't find work to do. No one quite knows what they're supposed to be doing on a given day. If everyone owns everything, then no one really owns anything. (laughs) So I think figuring out roles is really important. You know, the other thing that I see really, really often is um, startups, before they hit that critical milestone where they, they really scale and start to put these processes in place, a lot of the information people need is locked up inside the heads of early employees. You know, I, I talk a lot with people about yeah. this idea that the, the lore is passed down, the company lore is passed down through this oral tradition. Yeah. And that that really doesn't scale when you're, you know, pushing 30 or 40 people, you know, through your onboarding, you can't have the CEO sit down and spend an hour with every single one of those people during their first week Yeah, and That's tell them the story of how the company started <laughs> exactly. and all of the, you know, the, how we do things around here. It just doesn't scale. And so, you know, one of the big, one of the big challenges that I see a lot is these companies, they need to extract all of that information from their senior employees' heads. And, you know, they need to get into a knowledge base and, you know, they need to set that knowledge base up so that when people come in on their first day, they can just point them there and say, look, you won't have to ask me any questions. It's all really simple and laid out for you. So, so I get the kind of skill set side. What are the, I guess, technical skills that someone needs to, to learn as part of a new role? How do you deal with some of the cultural side of things? Because I, I always find that's a, that that is sometimes the harder challenge, which is I can I can write up a job description and a set of sort of skill, a skill set and sort of domain knowledge and things and transfer that. How do how do we transfer some of those less tangible aspects of culture? And this is the way we do things and some of the tacit knowledge around stuff. Any any great strategies there? Well, I think going back to what I said earlier about writing some of these things down, you know, the, the first thing, if, if a company hasn't already codified their values, you know, put a stick in the ground and said, yeah. this is what we stand for. And this is specifically how those values are expressed through behaviors. Yeah. It's really, really difficult to integrate people in their culture because the culture is just this big amorphous cloud of stuff. So, yeah, I mean, I really think making sure that you're able to identify, you know, what are the behaviors that yeah. make someone successful at this company? And, you know, if we group those together, you know, do they, what do we call those groups? You know, is it punctuality? Is it, you know, attention to detail? Is it being funny? Yeah. Every company has their own values and and they also, you know, you can only stand for so many things. Mm -hmm. Um, So also understand, you know, what are the things you don't stand for or the things that aren't really important at your company? Um, And how can you keep people from focusing on the wrong things? Yeah. I think that's, a really interesting point. It's something that I have found when I work with folks on values and we do kind of core values. I, I like to do something called anti-values where for every core value, we figure out what is the thing we're willing to give up? What is the thing that we're not? And it's that choice that saying we're, we do this and, and we're willing to give this up. And, and here we're, we're specifically saying we're not going to we're not going to focus on this to be able to get that. And because of that trade-off, I think a lot of companies get caught up in this. Well, we have all these great values but we really haven't talked about what we're not so that we 
you know, it's kind of then we're everything still. And I like that idea that you mentioned of like identifying those things that we're not and making that specific so that you give more power for those for those decisions that you've made. Yeah, there's a really helpful uh, similar technique when you're uh, when you're putting together what they call a brand voice Mm -hmm. for a company. You know, you'll express that brand voice both in terms of attributes that represent it, but then also attributes that don't represent it. So, for example, um, when I was putting together the brand voice for For the Win, one of my adjective pairs was um, cool, was the positive, but then the, the, the negative was not too cool for school. Got it. I like it. So you really, you kind of dial in that, what that intention is and how do you live it? Do you have a good examples of the behavioral? I mean, do you actually get into like prescriptive behavioral definitions or, or codifications around this? So those things really, I see it less as deriving the behaviors from the values and more the inverse. Um, so oh, okay. really starting with the behaviors and, you know, letting the values emerge from the behaviors that people already know will make people successful at the company. It's really, really hard to, to sort of shoehorn a set of values into a set of behaviors that already exist in your company. Yeah. So do you does that feel- make sense? Um, no, it does. I'm trying to figure out in terms of process. So we're talking about kind of the hiring, onboarding. How much of you? How much of this do you think is part of the hiring, filtering process, the candidate selection filtering process, and how much of it is kind of the onboarding, training, indoctrination kind of process? So I actually don't make a super huge distinction between the hiring and the onboarding process. I see every touch point that, you know, a new hire has with your company as a really, really important, you know, what they call a micro interaction. Mm -hmm. And so every one of those micro interactions from the minute that someone from your company first reaches out to them up until you get them an offer letter to their first day, all the way through their first yearly review, um, you know, all of those are part of one long employee journey. Interesting. Yeah. And I like that idea that it's it's not your your onboarding doesn't start when you've made a hire. Your onboarding starts when they first see the job description on your website. Right? It, it yeah. starts when they first interact with you thinking about it. Absolutely. Being an employee. Yeah. And this is really and this is really heavily influenced also just by my training with user onboarding for consumer products. Yeah. You know. Yeah, I think that for me, that's a that's a big, interesting shift in the perspective on this. And if you really think about this as, look, you really need to design the experience from initial point of inquiry, not the well, I'm gonna I'm gonna think about it only once. I think you're right, honestly. I think a lot of the impact, a lot of the positioning, what's in the employee's head is already in there by the time they've made the decision to take the job. And if you haven't Absolutely. if you haven't done the work to actually design that and make that intentional and making sure that's the impression that you really want and that's the frame that you really want to work with once they're hired, you're kind of at that point it's almost too late or you're you're dealing with the 10% that you still have yet to be able to control, which is a minor a minor stake in it. You absolutely have to frame things, you know, from the very, very beginning. And again, you, you only get one chance to make that first impression and to set that framing. Thanks. Great. So uh, what have you seen that works well or what what do you focus on when you're working with clients on this? So you're coming in, they've got a resourcing plan, a talent plan around a growth target. How do you start to break that down for them in terms of strategy, in terms of what is the process going to look like? How do you focus? So first, all jobs start with research. 
And so really, you know, that involves me taking a look at all of the different touch points that they already have out there. So if they have a job site, I'll take a look at that. I'll take a look at their LinkedIn, their Crunchbase profile. Yeah. A lot of companies do not pay a lot, a yeah. lot of attention to their Crunchbase profile. It makes them look sloppy. Yeah. You know, I will talk to some of the people who've already joined their company and, you know, figure out what went well, what didn't go super well. I'll talk to some of the managers that have brought people onto their teams and talk to them about the same thing. How do you, so I, I get this a lot, which is what do you do with Glassdoor? Like how, how does that factor into things? I've got a lot of clients who call me up and we're like, my Glassdoor rating is terrible. What do I do? I mean, I, I'm assuming this is kind of part of the research, but how does this work? That's definitely part of the audit. And, yeah. you know, I think Glassdoor, it's, it's a hairy, hairy place for everyone who works in people. But I see Glassdoor, you know, and this is also my consumer app developer background speaking, but I see Glassdoor, it's, it's kind of like the app store. <laughs> um, yeah. And I remember very clearly some of the, the one-star reviews that I had to read back when I was making apps for Vice and for the New York Times. They were, they were deeply unpleasant things to read. But also every time I saw, you know, somebody complaining that we had lost their saved articles or, you know, why do I have to pay for a cable subscription just so I can watch these videos? I thought to myself, you know, people yeah. don't bring it upon themselves to sign up for a site like Glassdoor or log into their iTunes account and leave a bad review unless they're deeply, deeply unhappy. It's not a thing people do to troll. And so I think, you know, feedback is feedback and mm. all feedback needs to be at least considered, yeah. you know, with an honest and open approach. All right. So you, so you collect all that data. So you do the ton of the audit, you do the assessment and where do you go from there once you're working with a client? So there's often a workshop. Okay. The workshop is, it serves a few purposes. It helps us identify some of the existing trouble spots that, you know, we're all kind of aware of. It helps us map out that customer journey that the employee goes through. Mm -hmm. And it helps us figure out, you know, how are we going to cover some of the high level goals for the onboarding? And, you know, those high level goals, you know, most people leads will, will break them down into what they call the four C's. So mm -hmm. compliance, role clarity, clarity mm -hmm. of, of purpose, culture, making sure that, you know, the culture is, is expressed and, and the behaviors that, that make up that culture are communicated clearly. And the final one is community. So building right. a support network around people and making sure that, you know, you can connect them to mentors, peers, they've got someone to vent to if they have a really, really bad day. Does that make sense? Yeah. And, and what are the, I mean, I guess typically what do you see kind of common challenges or common situations, think things that come up on a regular basis for you when, when you're doing the audits and you're doing the uh, work with folks? First day setup is always a headache. Just huh. getting a list of all the different tools and vendors that the company has in place and you know how to access those things or request access to them, number one headache that I see. Huh. So it's literally like an employee shows up day one, do they have the tools and the accounts and the logins to be able to at least try to be productive? <laughs> mm-hmm. And if you go one step deeper, does the company know what tools they have access to even? So, oh, you know, yeah. one type of problem is, oh, you know, I need access to this thing and, and I don't know who to ask. An entirely different class of problem is, oh, you know, well, it's been six months and, you know, the spreadsheet that I've been using to track all of our clients is, is getting a little bit unwieldy um, and having them find out, oh, we actually we have a we have a CRM. 
oh, really? You know, you mean I could just log into Salesforce and, well, it looks like I've been duplicating all these clients in my spreadsheet. So I guess I just wasted six months of your salary. So, so this is the finding situations where employees, because they're not have sort of good situational awareness of everything that's going on in the company, end up creating kind of local, local solutions to problems that are, have actually been solved by the company. They just don't know it. They haven't been able to, they don't even know how to articulate it to say this is a problem that they have. Exactly. Yeah. And so how so so how do you discover those things and develop a process around those things? Is that part of the audit? Definitely part of the workshop, making okay. sure that, you know, all of those things. And it may not even be something we cover in a workshop. It may just be something that, you know, we send around a doc to everyone in the company if it's a small enough team and say, "Hey, dump everything that you're using into this doc." Oh, okay. Um, you know, we're going to audit all of our expenses and make sure that we've got, you know, no duplicate accounts. And we're also going to make a list of all these things. So the next person who joins doesn't have to run around for a week or two trying to figure out what tools we use. So, so there's, there's, which I like, there's, there's actually uh, sort of getting into the operational standard operating procedures, you know, the technology that using standards practices on the operation side. So you can make sure that that already they haven't duplicated these things and you haven't created strains of, of processes and actually align that stuff before you actually start bringing new people in it. Let's make sure the current process really works and that we're efficient. A hundred percent. Yeah. And, and I'd add, you know, one of the things that surprised me with early clients that, that really seems super valuable is that, you know, this work, it really opens up a dialogue. Yeah with the team about those standard operating procedures. And oftentimes, you know, you've got these processes that were just put in place because that's the way things have always been done or someone brought them over from their last job and just put the same process in place um, and no one really gave any thought to it. And, you know, as soon as you get people to start writing these things down and say, hey, you know, we're, <laughs> we're building a foundation for the future hires to do things right, all of a sudden there's an impetus for people to look critically at some of these things that they've been doing, you know, every yeah. single day and say, Oh, how can we do this better? Yeah. It's almost kind of, that kind of gets into a continuous improvement kind of mindset of, you know, how, how do we make sure that we're sharpening the ax and that we're, we're looking at how do we improve the way we're working, not just kind of trying to crank more out. I'm, I mean, I, I would imagine that you've got a lot of aha moments where you're getting some folks together you're facilitating that discussion of how do you do something and someone kind of says, well, wait, that's the way you do it. That's not the way I do it. I mean, do you get that, that kind of epiphany? Those are very, very fun moments. Yeah. yeah. There's a lot of, there's a lot of aha moments in particular, you know, the, the research early on, oftentimes it will surface some uncomfortable truths for leadership. And, you know, those difficult conversations that we have early on after the research, they're some of the most valuable outputs that people get from the work that I do. Yeah. What, what is that conversation like with leadership early in the process? Like, what do you need to kind of set up for them or prepare them for when you kind of start this process? Well, I start by setting expectations and, you know, to say, look, we're, we're going to do some research. Yeah. You're probably going to Here's some things that you're not going to be super thrilled about. We're going to dig into problems and challenges. And, you know, I have never worked with a company where one of the challenges was not leadership. Yeah. So prep yourself now. And, you know, when we get to that conversation, by that point, I have gotten a lot of data from their company. And, you know, if I'm telling them something that I that I think is happening inside their team, it's because I've heard from their own staff in their own words, you know, how is this problem affecting them? And I think it's it's rare to find a leader who, you know, when presented with quotes from their own employees, um, will not get on board with change. Yeah, I think that that uh, that idea of 
it's almost like uh, sociological research. Like you're going in there and actually just uncovering, uh, like an archaeologist, kind of uncovering what is currently there and just showing that to leadership. And it, I think having that proof, that kind of, look, this is actually what's happening, kind of diffuses that kind of argument or that, that emotional reaction to, to it and then actually can focus on solution around it. It's absolutely sociology. Yeah. It's, it's literally the same type of work that sociologists will do when they, you know, make home visits in yeah. rural villages in Africa. Yeah. Yeah. It's very data. I like that approach. Very kind of data uh, driven approach to the, the situation to find the, find the areas that need improvement. So let's talk about kind of how you approach it from a business point of view. Like what are the factors that go into kind of costing this out, you know, costing the, the problem? the work that needs to go into it, how do you frame it or how do you suggest leaders frame kind of that whole onboarding, recruitment, onboarding, engagement process from an ROI point of view? So I, I actually have a calculator that I will send them awesome. um, where they can punch in, you know, how many heads do they have today? How many heads did they have a year ago? How many people left in the last year? Um, what's their average salary? And, you know, how many new people are they going to bring in over the next 12 months? And with those five numbers, I can get a pretty decent estimate of how much they're spending right now on replacement costs for employees Mm -hmm. who turn over. And I can also get a decent read on how much are they spending to ramp up these new hires who are coming in, earning a full-time salary, but not yet full contributors. So from that calculation, is that then kind of a decision-making point of, hey, we shouldn't actually do a whole lot of hiring right now because we need to fix like we don't want to scale problems. It's always my, my always, you know, I don't want to scale problems. I want to scale success, right? So I want to create successful situations before I start scaling a whole lot of the business. Is there a similar thing on the talent side? Most of the time when I talk to folks, they are hiring no matter what. There is nothing that's going to stop them. There's no choice There's to be made. nothing that's going to stop them. Yeah, they've, they've got that hiring plan. They presented it to their investors. They are locked in and they're just scrambling to build the best possible experience for those new hires that they can in the time they have with the resources they have before they get them in. So most of the work you're doing is that the train is moving and we're figuring out what what do we need to do to smooth out the train ride as it's going it's not do we should we accelerate the train is already on its path the rocket is lit and you're you're on you're going <laughs> exactly yeah. yeah and the roi stuff you know more than anything it's to be able to make a, a really solid financial case to the cfo to yeah. the board you know to all of the people who are going to check their investments later and and so they can say look you know we spent x on this consultant services and this is what we expect we saved in costs in the first year this is how we expect that's going to compound over time yeah so for the work that you do specifically any any criteria that are important for you or, or companies you typically work for have certain characteristics i would say they're hiring fast okay Typically, they're hiring at a rate of 5 to 8% per month, mm-hmm. shooting that's, to probably double within 12 to 18 months. Yeah, that's fast. Other than that, they typically have venture funding. Okay. It's typically been fairly recent. You know, the, the venture funding cycle, it's different for every startup, but typically companies will raise every 12 to 18 months. Mm-hmm. And so what that means is if a company raised money maybe nine or 10 months ago, by the time they talk to me, they've probably gone through a lot of that cash and they're yeah. probably, you know, running up on another funding round. Funding round yeah. and, and so for me, really, the, the ones who are in the sweet spot, it's they closed around last week. They have, you know, a ton of jobs on their jobs page right now. They're going to post a whole lot more and, you know, they really want to build the welcoming diverse team. Yeah. Um, but it's really, really hard to do that when you're keeping the wheels on the bus. Yeah. Yeah. Is there, 
ideally for you, what's the best time? Is it just after they get the funding, just before they get funding, six months before they get funding? Like when, in order to really kind of do the work and get the most benefit um, out of it, when would they start? Uh, just after the funding. Yeah. So, exactly. you know, they'll, they'll need to have the resources to be able to invest not only in my services, but all of the other infrastructure yeah, exactly. that they might need, any tools they need. So they need to have cash in the bank so they can start investing in these things. But it needs to be fairly soon after the funding because every time they hire a new person, you yeah, know, they're letting a little bit of that ROI slip away. Yeah. All right. And if people want to get more information about you, about For the Win, what's the best way to get a hold of you? So the website is ftw.nyc. I am on Twitter at Benjamin Jackson. I'm also on Instagram at Benjamin Jackson. For the win is on Twitter at FTWNYC. And it's on Instagram at FTWDOTNYC. That's uh, FTW.NYC, but the dot is spelled out. out. I like it. Spelled out. And I will put all of that in the the show notes here so people can uh, click on those and get more information. I'll put your bio and stuff on there as well. Ben, this was great. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Uh, Absolute pleasure. Yeah. uh, Thank you so much. I look forward to uh, keeping in touch on this. uh, And uh, thanks for everyone for listening. Uh, Check out Ben's stuff below. Great work. This website's got all that information. And I think you've got a link to the calculator on your website if people want to check that out. I do. Yeah. So go to the website. All right. Thanks again, Ben. Thanks so much. Take care. You've been listening to Scaling Up Services with business coach Bruce Eckfeldt. To find a full list of podcast episodes, download the tools and worksheets, and access other great content, visit the website at scalingupservices.com. And don't forget to sign up for the free newsletter at scalingupservices.com slash newsletter. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.